Hey, everybody. So if I gave you a multiple choice exam and I said, which of the following four topics do teens most often think about? Before I even gave you those four topics, I bet you at least most of you, at least 90% you would say sex at some point, because that seems to be on teens' minds a lot, or at least we think it's on teens' minds a lot. What we don't know particularly well is how to talk about it. That's going to be the subject of today's podcast. Welcome back to Shrinking It Down, Mental Health Made Simple. I'm Gene Boresson. And I'm Steve Schlossman. So, Steve, how was your week? What happened to you this week? Um, it was good. Uh, so, um, it's cold. We all know that. That, oh. like, struck the whole nation. I had a good time watching mus- or videos on YouTube with my younger daughter this morning. One uh, gal came out of her dorm with her hair still wet and it got blown up in the air and it froze like that. <laughs> like, so she was like shaking her head and it was like little icicles were falling off and then somebody else threw their coffee in the air and it turned into ice. Is really? It yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, so, you know, you make the best of it when it's this cold. It was in, what, in Kansas City? Uh, that, no, no, these videos were in like, Mich- one was in Michigan, one was in Nebraska, but it was, it was like 20 below. Yeah, it was you way, know, without the wind chill. Way cold. Yeah. Wow. What it's, about pretty, you? it's pretty cold out there. Um... Well, this past week uh, was my birthday. I should have known that. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's okay. Oh. Because um, birthdays, birthdays are so strange. You know, the, the, you know. The Especially more... when you turn thirty. Yeah. Thirty nine. Thirty nine. Okay, got it. But no, so you know, it was actually actually it was really it was a really nice day. I mean, nobody was around until the evening, and um, you know, it's rare that I get a chance to spend a day alone, and I. Um, I actually um, did a lot of work on the piano. I played a lot of music, um, worked on some arrangements. It was just really, it was really nice. That sounds great. <laughs> That's great. There ought to be a way we can do more of that every day. I I liked being by myself for a, a, a big part of the day. In fact, <laughs> on this podcast, we often talk about the things we need to do to keep ourselves more well. Yeah. And among the things we say is put time aside to just enjoy ourselves. Yeah. And you don't often do that no, no, except no. on your birthday. Yeah, I you know. You should do it more. I know. We yeah. all should. It was it was a happy birthday. Yeah. It was a happy Good. birthday. Happy birthday. I'm yeah. sorry I missed it. So let uh, so and we have somebody and Ellen Broughton is here. All the way from Central Europe, from Prague <laughs> in the Czech Republic. How, how's the weather in Prague, Ellen? <laughs> It's a balmy 35 degrees right now, oh, and that's about as cold as it ever really gets. And, and you must know that 35 is balmy by comparison, you know, where we are. Heard. I Who really would have thought that spending a winter in the Czech Republic would feel very warm compared to what I would have normally spent my winter doing? In in. You know, we, we should—I'm glad you're enjoying it. I'm glad it's warm there. But we should also point out, you know, you're part of the Clay Center, as, as folks know. What are you doing there? Like, why are you all the way over there and not here? Well, I am a visiting professor at Charles University, one of the oldest universities in the world, started by Charles the 
first, I think, like in the 12th century or 13th century. And I am teaching at their medical school and their university, I'm teaching medical students just like I do there in Boston. But they're just different groups of students and lots of international students because uh, where Prague is located, they have a lot of international students from sort of developing European countries like the Ukraine and um, Hungary, Romania. Yeah. Romania. So, so a lot of their courses are taught in English. Uh, in fact, all of them are to their own students. So I'm and, doing and, that and I'm teaching Czech students and yeah. Didn't you say at some point in the last few weeks that one big difference was, was that the students actually listened to you? Ooh, careful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not, not, not that our students don't listen to us here, but... I, not just the students, but when I do a lot of lecturing to, like, different faculty groups, so, like, the Department of Pediatrics, like, all of their pediatric, their pediatricians and pediatric faculty, they don't move. When I mean they don't move, I mean everyone sits there and completely looks at you. I think if uh, the Czech... The, just the Czech people are very much a very polite sort of people. And now I've said this to people and they're like, well, we don't always get somebody from Harvard to come talk to us. So it's, it's, we listen, but I don't think that's what it is. I really think that they, it, it's different. Nobody's on their phones, but even when I'm on the train, people read books. It's just a different sort of lifestyle, at least for now. But there's not, there's not a lot of digital media use. And in, in, when you're giving, a, when we give talks here, faculty, students, everybody's on some digital device, presumably taking notes, of course. But, you know, nobody, they weren't, it, that was not the case in Prague. Oh, not at all. I think part of it might be that they are not hooked up to the internet like we can be, and it's expensive. So to be roaming is expensive, and at the hospital, you can't just get on the internet. So it's, I, that might be part of it. But I just think people are much more, I, I think it's just a different, it's a cultural difference where people, they read, this is one of the most, they have one of the highest literacy rates anywhere. There's a bookstore on every corner. People are reading all the time in cafes and it, it's it's a little different. Yeah, the, the, the media use is definitely different. But interestingly, one of the things that the pediatricians wanted me to talk about next week, which I have gotten some of your slides and Steve's slides and uh, is on media use. So they're they're worried about this. And so it's it's not as if it's not an issue on people's minds, but it's not the same as it is in the US. That is that is for sure. There's still more of a cafe kind of society where people write and read and and use paper. So I'll enjoy it while it lasts. Yeah, that sounds lovely, actually. <laughs> that sounds great. But I'll come back, I promise. <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, today we're going to be talking about sex in the teenage brain. Is there anything else in the teenage brain? <laughs> <laughs> of course there is. But, but once you say that, you're going to get a lot it, of teenagers. It takes up a lot, of, a lot of mental and physical space in the teenage brain. Yeah, and, and I believe this, this podcast is airing right around Valentine's Day, right? So it sure is. It's, uh, I guess we could tie it together in that way. But even if it weren't around Valentine's Day, this feels like a topic we ought to pay some attention to, given how much... Uh, attention teenagers, you know, appropriately and evolutionarily and biologically pay to this subject as well. So, um, Steve or Ellen, what what can you tell our listeners about how the, the adolescent brain is wired and 
where where does where does sex kind of come into to that to that wiring that networking? Yes. <laughs> Good. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm glad you know the answer. <laughs> right. Yeah, no. no, I'm saying yes, it comes into that wiring. It, it never doesn't come into that wiring. I mean, it's it's the you know, just from a from an evolutionary standpoint, it's the oldest biological drive there is, right? Yeah. Right. Regardless of one's sexual orientation, the, as one comes of age, as one enters puberty, as those hormones come online, uh, sexual behavior, sexual attractiveness, sexual attention, really skyrockets. And I actually think it's um, it's actually sort of remarkable that kids learn anything academic at all when they're in middle school and high school, once puberty takes over. Like, like it's an impressive act of will that they can focus on their schoolwork during that time, given what we know about how the brain processes this information. One thing that I think is important, and maybe um, for Ellen and Steve, um, and that is, yes, the hormones are raging, yes, they're preoccupied, but the teenage brain, you know, we know between ages 14 and 26 you know, their higher centers are already well-established, and what they're doing is they're connecting... The higher centers of the brain. The higher yeah. centers of the brain yeah. are really well-established, but what's not connected is their emotional, kind of the primitive... Well, it's not connected as well. They're, they're it's not, connected. It's connected, but it's not myelinated. It's poorly... Words, yeah, it's poorly insulated. It's poorly insulated. So so the, the communication from the primitive region of the brain to the higher brain is less efficient than the primitive region of the brain to more primitive regions of the body. Right. So I, I think one of the things that happens is that they have good ability to know what it is they're supposed to do, a good ability to organize themselves, at least theoretically, but they don't have a very good ability to actually put that into place. So it's one of those things where we call hot executive functioning versus cold executive functioning. They're starting to get the sense of executive functions are those things that help us regulate our behavior and stay organized and use our intellect efficiently and fluently. So they know how to do that. For instance, they know how they should be organizing their paper, but they don't necessarily do it in the moment. And that is nowhere better. Uh, the, the dichotomy between that is nowhere better explored, I think, than in sexuality, where it's like they know what it is they're not supposed to be doing or should be doing or what would be best for them. But it, but uh, they're in the heat of the moment, those executive function skills, those, that ability to sort of say, no, I better pass on this or this might not be in my best interest just goes away. And so they're, they're driven more by, well, by impulse and by pleasure seeking and by living in the moment than by putting the brakes on and saying, wait, let me stop and, and think about whether this is okay or not okay. Right. Is that, that what you're saying? Yeah. 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 I mean, in that sense, it's, it's not different from other impulsive behaviors that adolescents pursue other potentially, I'm not saying that all sexual activity yeah. is reckless, but other potentially reckless behavior. On a multiple choice exam, a teenager could answer appropriately and in ways that we would like correctly almost every time what they ought to do in a given situation so as not to get into trouble. But when it comes time to actually make a decision in the heat of the moment during those hot cognitive moments that Ellen talked about, it's really hard for them to behave the way they said they would behave on that multiple choice exam. And, and parents forget that sometimes. They're like, how can you, like you hear this question, how could you have been so stupid? It wasn't that they were being stupid. They couldn't even get it to the part of their brain that would know it was stupid. Like, like they just acted. 
right? Even though if they had a few minutes to spare, they actually might have done something differently. Maybe, yes, yes. And, and those, uh, but it might take more than just a few minutes to spare, I think, in some of these cases. And then, um, you know, some of those things that you're talking about, Steve, is really, that are really, start, they start to develop when, when kids are as young as three. Three-year-olds know what, you know, what would be the logical solution to a, a simple problem. But when they're put in that, uh, for example, kids, you know, the marshmallow test where kids yeah. are asked delay gratification so that their experimenter puts a marshmallow in front of them and says, if I come back in, in a few minutes and you haven't eaten the marshmallow, I'll give you two. And three-year-olds, they did an experiment where um, the experimenter said to the three-year-old, listen, I, I've got this, the, this marshmallow here, and if I wait until after we're done playing, I can get three marshmallows. What should I do? And the three-year-old's almost always said you should wait. But when the three-year-old was put into that situation, the three-year-olds almost always ate the marshmallow so and couldn't delay gratification because it was right there in front of them. They, they couldn't resist. So even though, you know, so these these are skills that take a very long time for us to to evolve. And right. and it's we're talking about something way more tempting than a marshmallow. Well, I was just going to say, I, I, I just uh, do we want to follow this metaphor as, I, I, as far as as we're going here? Is so sex? Just to make sure I understand, sex is the marshmallow, or is like what? But what you're saying basically is, I think I think well, the temptation is the. I guess so. I think I I don't know. Do I have the right metaphor here? No, no. Well, I think I think it is because you know the other thing that's going on is the temptations. Are, in fact, there's just an article in the, in the Boston Globe about this. The temptations are more visceral in some ways than they've ever been. With, with the advent of social media, kids are able to say things to one another, show things about themselves to one another that they weren't able to do or would never have done without this kind of perceived anonymity that social media yields. And then that ups the ante for the temptation. It makes it that much harder to avoid the marshmallow, so, so to speak. Like, then they... Then they follow through. So, so not only is the temptation stronger, but now we have all of these things in our society, maybe not in the Czech Republic, as you were saying, but they're worried about it. That's why you're having that discussion. But certainly here, we see it. And they're worried about it. You know, I'm thinking about our own, and I've, I'll put us all in about the same age bracket because we grew up before cell phones. So when, if you think about it, if you wanted to have a rendezvous at age 15 with somebody, first of all, you had to make sure that, and it was on a, a you know weekend where you didn't see them at school, you had to first make sure that nobody was on the phone. And some people actually in my town had party lines. So you had to make sure that your neighbor wasn't on the phone before. I mean, a lot of forethought had to go into a rendezvous. Now it just it's it's right you know like right here on your phone it's it's it it's immediate so it, you really don't have some of those stopping points that you would have had which would have been like my sister's on the phone so I couldn't even call him back and there's no way to or or even even you know we could do this for a while because this kind of. I, I think it actually is real nostalgia for for a time when it it took more planning and therefore required more thinking. Like I had to dial seven full phone numbers on a rotary phone in order to reach the girl I was trying to reach. And at any given time, I could abort that mission, right? At any given time, I could say, I cannot stand the time for this thing to go back around from the nine all the way back to the zero. And I would just hang up. And for listeners who don't know what a rotary phone is, just Google it. And you'll, and you'll see that it took a while to make a phone call. Now, 
it's just a button. It's or, a single, and it's instantaneous. Or or, right? or, or, or watch the movie Bye Bye Birdie, uh, the telephone scene at the very beginning, which they'll also have to Google. Which you'll also have to Google. <laughs> but but no, but but let's let me get to one thing that I'm sure that many of the listeners are are thinking about and concerned about. If all of these, if these hot, hot driving forces in the brain are raging, and there is instant access to, you know, through 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 media, what to what to to, to to get together, to have sex, to you know, do whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, whatever teenagers do. Okay, so what can parents, teachers, what can we do? What can adults do to help the help help teenagers um, learn? Um, a, you know, kind of the, the the healthiest ways to grow and develop. I mean, are, are we going to be captives? Is this is this just kind of chaos that's going to ensue? Or is there a role for adults to kind of provide some kind of guidance or older teenagers uh, in, in this situation? I, I hope that's a rhetorical question, given that this is what we do for a living, right? Like, like, so I'm hoping that you're asking this with the hopes that it we'll comes have an up, answer it in com- mind. It, it comes up in, in, my, in my sessions with patients all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, and it comes up, and parents worry a lot about this, and they, and they think, like, what am I supposed to do? We know that abstinence doesn't work. Censorship, prohibition. Wait, wait, no. do- what you mean is telling people to remain abstinent. T- telling, doesn't help. Te- yeah, yeah. We know from prohibition, pro- if you prohibit, censor, demand abstinence, it's 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 going to backfire because it's going to it's 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 kind of just saying like don't cross this line, they cross that the line. The forbidden becomes attractive. That's right. So yeah. short of demanding abstinence, what are ways that we can provide some tips or guidance that might help? you know, normal, healthy, you know, social development in our teenagers, given this situation. What do you think, Ellen? You know, sometimes role-playing these sorts of things with them um, and giving them responsibility. Kids tend to act out less when they have other things that they're responsible for. Um, So I think giving me the opportunity to role-play some of these things theoretically, talk through them, what would you do in this situation, what have other people done in this situation, knowing, too, as a parent, the the fact that they can tell you what they would do and should do, they won't necessarily do, but I think that that doing some of that, going through some of these scenarios with them, I think is important. I also think talking, the, the researchers are talking about sex and sexual development really needs to happen much earlier than we think it does. Um, these conversations need to start happening at ages 10, 11, 12, might be late for some kids. But I think just talking about some of these things and sharing your belief system, I think that you know, like it's not abstinence doesn't, you know, like telling people it's prohibited forever just makes it forbidden fruit. But I also think sort of talking about why you don't like I, I'm really not a big proponent of uh, that sex is fine for a 15 year old. I think sex is a confusing thing for people of any age. And I think that most 15 year olds are not ready for it. I think the same probably for most 16, 17 year olds. So, I mean, sharing that. It is okay because I think you know, and everybody has different beliefs on that. But my thing is that that it's a complicated thing, and to sort of talk to your kids about how it can make things really tough for them might be helpful for them to know. I'm so glad you you brought that up because I, I worry sometimes in these podcasts where, where we ask ourselves, well, what can we say to parents? We forget the fact that different families who might live right next to each other often have very different value systems, and those value systems are entirely valid. 
they're entirely valid. It's kids will usually push back if you say just because, right? Then they'll push back. But if you say, this is what we believe, this is what I believe as your parent, and this is why, then actually they'll often listen to you. I, I have a mentor who, who has this great line that I've actually used with patients. What she said, she said to patients who have um, felt odd about a sexual experience they've had earlier than they wish they had, is she says she's never met anybody who has a sexual experience and says, gee, I wish I'd done that sooner. They, they usually say, God, I wish I'd waited to have, in, in the sort of teenage age, I think at a certain point you, you might get to that part where you say, I wish I'd done that sooner, although I'm not clear on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never, I, I can't think of an adult who's ever said that to me. Oh my gosh, I wish, you know, we had taken that relationship to the next level sooner rather than later. That's usually not a good idea. Right. I, I Even for adults, it because it's complicated, because a sexual relationship complicates an already existing relationship, and it complicates it in wonderful ways too. But I, but I think that well, let me put it this way: getting into that without being prepared for it usually opens somebody up for heartbreak and confusion, and especially for teenagers who don't really know what to do with it and are overwhelmed and flooded with emotions that they've never felt before. Yeah, you know, and there's this really, this really interesting other finding, um, unsettling. I, I don't mean to take it away from the sort of. Uh, kind of somewhat happier way of talking about this, but as sexual activity becomes more common among younger people, we've seen the first uh, increase in sexually transmitted diseases in the United States in like a couple of decades. Uh, Disease, you know, chlamydia, um, gonorrhea, HIV, uh, all of these are on their way up. And and a lot of it has been sort of ascribed to this this quote-unquote hookup culture where people think that it's no big deal to get together. And then interestingly enough, when folks meet each other, especially online, on websites that are designed kind of to have almost consent built in, even though you should never think of it as consent, those kids will say that they use protection less often than if they meet someone at a party, which is fascinating when you think about it. That's where you would want to use more protection. But when asked about it, they say, well, this is my time to just cut loose. This is my time to just relax from all the stress, which is a terrifying thought when you think about it. You know, and the the other thing that I, I'd want to bring out here too is talking is really important. But one of the things I think that is um, is key is it's it's not so much talking for me about sex per se. It's about what what do you need as a building block in order to have a, a sexual relationship. So, for example, being responsible for your own behavior and and the behavior of somebody else. You know, being empathic, understanding where another person is at. Um, uh, you know, having a friendship, first and foremost, you know, being close and, 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 and loving somebody else in an emotional way, all of that stuff precedes that. If somebody is able to have a romantic relationship and love, and love another person and take responsibility for their behavior and be empathic and be understanding and, um, and have a friendship, um, sex can be a part of that picture. I mean, it depends on a complex set of circumstances and, and what the behaviors are about. So I think what you're saying is what we'd like to do is have a complicated, complex discussion with the teenagers, despite the fact that in a hot cognitive moment, they have a hard time having that discussion. Right. So we actually have to get to them in one of their calmer times in order to have these discussions. Exactly. Would that be true, Ellen? About about when executive functionings come in comes into play, the best is when it's a calm time. 
I mean, ideally, you know, that's, yes, you want to make um, plans for something and discuss something when you're not in the heat of the moment because you're, you know, cognitively able to think through those things and also be able to bring up to them, we're discussing this now. And when you're in the moment, what we're talking about may go out the window. So what were you going to do about that? Like, that's something we need to consider. It's like, you're giving me all the right answers and you seem to be really believing that that's the right, you know, way to act. But what you know, what about the heat of the moment? But, you know, the, the other thing we haven't, we touched a little bit on this, and Jean, you sort of brought this up, but, you know, the whole idea of, of sex being part of a loving relationship, or a, you know, more than a friendship, I think we've lost that a lot. I, I almost never hear anybody say that sex should come after love or sex should come after, you know, we're all, we all assume that sex is just something that, isn't, uh, you know, uh, on its own and that, you know, sort of like sex, love and friendship or some kind of Venn diagram where it just comes together every once in a while and, you know, one out of a thousand cases. But I really think that it would be helpful for our kids to talk about, you know, what sex sort of really means to us and, you know, when it's, you know, I don't know, like, like we, we've completely gotten away from that. Even when I was, you know, when I, my kids are now in their twenties. And so when they were at this age, I would say to them something like sex should be part of a loving relationship. Now we're just sort of saying like, just, you know, watch out. Because it's just interesting that, that it's becoming its own sort of activity. I think that we're trying to control where I think it might be better if we started thinking about it again as, as part of a, you know, something that you do because it's very, very special. And, and that, I don't know. I don't know what you guys think about that. No, no, I, I agree. I agree. I, I mean, I, it, it strikes me that because my kids are the youngest of, of all of us, I, and I have daughters, which matters here because I spend time warning them about places to be careful. And my daughters and also my patients have objected to that. And they've said, you know, I would like this to be part of something that's really special too, but I'm so busy warning them that it starts to be something to be afraid of as opposed to be part of a, a larger picture of a, of a complex, special relationship that uh, we're, I think probably is lost in, the, in our current culture. Now, having said that, I remember my parents trying to talk to me about this, and I was having none of it. Um, I told my mom, you get me a book, I'll read whatever you want, but I'm not sitting here and listening to you talk to me like this. And, and, but she did. And she said, I will only do that if you promise to read these books. And then she came home with some books in the library. And I, of course, had to mentalize my mom checking these books out at the library, which was uh, awkward. <laughs> That's weird. But then she said, here, Steve, these are the books. You promised to read them. And I did read them and they were immensely helpful. So the reason I'm saying that is not every kid is going to be, you know, all ready to talk about this with their parents, but parents should find some way to make the kids engage in the discussion, even if the parents aren't present, like engage in the, the discussion in displacement with someone else, in their mind with the parents, something like that. Uh, because if you don't think carefully about these things, you're not going to be, pre be prepared when they come downstream. I mean, this is one of those cases where raising a child in a community is important. And, you know, a, a younger uncle or, or aunt who can talk about some of these things that, are, that aren't as far removed or aren't your parents. Like, you really don't want to talk about 
sex with your parents. And as my kids have gotten older, and I, I hope they're not listening, but you don't really want to talk about sex, your kids' sexuality. You know, as they get older and become adults, it becomes awkward. You know, it's just one of those it's one of those things that tends to be private within family, within the parent-child um, dyad, I think. And so that's where you know having a larger family where they can talk about some of those things with. I think makes it a little bit easier too. So, so I know we're we're short on time, and obviously we could talk about this forever. I mean, it's about the oldest um, thing there is to talk about, in, you know, in human evolution. What's our sum up points? You got to be able to talk about it. You got to be able to talk about it. It's 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 tough to talk about it with with uh, parents and children, but if you have an older you know, a, an uncle or a cousin or an older sibling or somebody that you, the kid could talk about with easier, that would be better. And I think the, I think the point that, that I was raising uh, and Ellen uh, supporting is talk about relationships. Talk about wh- what sex means in the context of a relationship. Um, it's not just, you know, a, a randomly pleasurable activity or perhaps shouldn't be. Uh, but what does it mean to be involved with another person sexually? What what's the impact of that? And 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 what what might be, what might come before sex? And let the kids talk about that. Ellen, what what would you add? I totally agree with that. And I would also say that I mean, part of it, you know, it, I would feel that like some parents are kind of. I feel like they're in a losing battle because kids don't date at all. Because what comes before that usually is a relationship. And sex is the the culmination of of being in a relationship with two people who really care about each other. And for, you know, so I think that makes it hard. And I think that, you know, I think we need to shift back to that. I don't know how we get there, but, uh, you know, the pendulum hopefully we'll swing back to that where kids are spending more time developing a relationship with someone they care about. Um, I think that's just a healthier way of engage, you know, healthier thing to do before engaging in sex. I think so. I mean, as a, as an avid pop culture watcher, every romantic comedy aimed at teenagers and young adults, that comes out every TV show. It's always about a relationship it's it's almost never pure. Sometimes it'll look like it's purely about the sexual relationship, but then they recognize that there's a relationship evolving from it. Teenagers are aware of this. We just have to to help them to better enact it. And and as we've pointed out, we can talk until we're green, but we need to let them know that all of the things that we think they've imbibed might have a tendency to go out the window in the heat of the moment, and they need to remember that so that they can recall these things that we've tried to impart to them. Right. Right. Much more to, to talk about with that. Yep. So um, as we tend to end these podcasts, what has been in the news this week, Steve, Ellen, that you guys have uh, found, you know, striking? What's 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 hit you in the news? Ellen, you can go. Oh, you know, well, I'm going to be honest here that I, I am living in a place where I don't hear the news very much, and it's so wonderful. Um, it's really, not only that, I don't speak the language, so even when I go into a coffee shop and I'm sitting around, I don't know what anybody's saying. So I, I really, it's it's wonderful. So my news is, is you know, yes, I look on Twitter, and I, I look a little bit online what's going on, but I don't have the news on. I don't have TV show that I can watch. It's really wonderful. Oh. <laughs> I know this is not what you expected. No, it's 
I'm jealous. It's funny because Prague is like the spy capital of the world. So somebody's looking to the news in Prague. It is. I mean, I did. I did. I was in a, in a wine bar a few weeks ago, and I was the only person there who was not speaking Russian. And there were a lot of um, uh, uh, women in very high heels with lots of makeup on and men who looked very burly. And I actually wound up texting one of my friends who is a Russian expert. And I said, do you think it's a bad thing if you're in a bar in Prague and you're the only person not speaking Russian? And he said, get out of there right now. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is, it is the spy capital of the world. I have that on very good record from someone who would really know. So it doesn't make much sense to me that we should know where the spy capital of the world is. I mean, then they're not really spies, right? Like, if we know they're all there, how undercover is that? That's not really a spy place. Maybe the spy capital of the world is like Peoria. I don't know. It's... Well, if everybody's a spy, then how can you tell one spy from another? Well, I know. It's, it's... <laughs> but I, I do like the idea of you, Dr. Broughton, being um, in a place where you don't get subjected to the barrage that we do. Um, no, it's fabulous. So, so what's what 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 hit you in the news this week? Um, for me, it was it was local news. I, I flew home to see my folks uh, a couple weekends ago to watch the Chiefs lose to the Patriots. I'm from Kansas City. It was a hard game to watch, uh. um, but it was interesting to me to see how this kind of wholesome Midwestern town said, "Well, it was a good season. We're bummed about it, but we got a bright future," and then moved on even on sports radio. And then I come out to Boston and listen to sports radio, which I adore, but boy, they have a different attitude about things. They do. They do. Uh, and they're trying, and they're trying to jazz themselves up to kind of like make themselves the underdog so that they can kind of get fired up about, I don't about, think a team about, that's been in the LA. Super Bowl for the third straight year is an I, underdog. I know. Yeah. I know. Well, that's been in the news and that's been, I've been paying attention to that too. It's the, the, the old versus the young. I mean, the oldest 66 year old Belichick against the youngest uh, coach, coach yeah. in the in the league, and and yeah. so that's that's hit me. But you know, I, I could go political nationally, which I, I am which you never do. do. No, never. but no, no, I'm not going yeah. to. I'm not going to because what struck me in the news was in our great state of Massachusetts when I heard what uh, our governor had proposed was to increase the uh, the budget for public school education, um, and 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 it's so important that we kind of not forget the value of our public schools and how and how they really do need funding and they do need state funding beyond you know you know focusing on the tax base of the communities which are uh, no win for increasingly certain, dwindling increasingly dwindling and yep. and among the the, the 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 poor communities where the kids need strong education the most they need subsidies and i was so happy to hear that the state is moving in that direction yeah i mean it's the oldest public school in the nation this year yeah, so I, I'm delighted for it, too. Yeah. So thanks a lot for listening, everybody. And if you have any questions or comments, just, you know, write in and let us know. I'm Gene Bresson. And I'm Steve Schlossman. And I'm Alan Broughton. <laughs> thanks. We'll talk to you all later. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.